I want to encourage you to turn in your Bibles this morning to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. It's a, a little bit of a longer chapter. I'm not going to go through all of it in uh, deep detail. Uh, we want to highlight uh, the concept of understanding and committing to the body of Christ. Uh, kind of getting a better understanding of what we seek to do here on a weekly basis as we gather to hear the Word of God and to grow. So, as I think about the church, I sometimes use the analogy of athletics to gain clarity on uh, various priorities within the church. If you are a, a, a fan of uh, football, for instance, uh, if you're a, a local fan here, theoretically you're a Giants fan. Some of you are Eagles fans. Uh, if the Eagles and Giants were playing today, the headline on TV would be Wentz versus Odell Beckham Jr., okay? Those being the two outstanding starlights of those teams. And what happens in the realm of athletics is that there is a strong tendency to focus on prominent players. Uh, but if you were to dig into that analogy a little bit, you would begin to understand that every truly gifted athlete knows that the team that they're on is important to their success, that they may have a role of higher visibility and greater impact, but they realize that that impact is impossible apart from the team. Same thing is true in the realm of military. People tend to love to talk about relatives that are becoming Green Berets or Navy SEALs. We tend to love that position of prominence and importance, but every military uh, officer knows that behind him stands a great team of people that are given the charge of logistics, of supply, of intelligence, and they understand that all of those things are vital to the success of the more prominent or frontline individuals. A gifted army without resources and starving, starving would be doomed to fail. And so there is a large group of individuals that yield to the success of the team or of the army in using those analogies. That same danger of celebrity is present in the church as well. In the age of internet and TV and radio, uh, you have access to a whole lot of influence. And you may at times have the privilege of benefiting from the ministry of very prominent uh, pastors and speakers and teachers and that, that sort of thing. But the truth is this, in, in the context of our country, most churches in America will be served by people of average gifting. God, in his unique and wise design, uh, has made it so that people of various levels of gifting are able to have a large impact on the broader, broader interest of the church, the body of Christ. In the text that is before us, Paul's going to address, and I think his primary focus in this realm of spiritual gifts in 1 Corinthians 12, is to address the issue of the tendency to focus on prominent gifts with the effect of devaluing the rest of gifts within the body of Christ. That's Paul's primary concern as you read through chapter 12. Uh, chapter 13 and 14 have a different concern in relation to spiritual gifts, but in this text, the, the emphasis is on the importance of every part doing its part so that the body of Christ, all of us, can be healthy together. Okay, that's the value that I believe this text is going after. Not defining and not understanding spiritual gifts in specific detail, but understanding how all of those parts together accomplish something that no part can accomplish alone in spite of its 
prominence. Okay? So I want to read through verses 1 through 11 just to set a little bit of context for you. So verses 1 through 11 of 1 Corinthians 12. Paul says, now about the gifts of the Spirit. Anytime in 1 Corinthians, Paul says, now, he's simply transitioning to the next topic. Okay, so for three chapters, there's going to be a focus on the topic of spiritual gifts. He says, brothers and sisters, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagan, somehow or other, you were influenced and led astray to mute idols. Therefore, I want you to know that no one who is speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus is cursed. And no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except by the Holy Spirit. There are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit distributes them. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working. But in all of them and in everyone, it is the same God who is at work. Emphasis is on unity. Now, to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. To one, there is given Through the Spirit, a message of wisdom. To another, a message of knowledge by means of the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by that one Spirit. To another, miraculous powers. To another, prophecy. To another, distinguishing between spirits. To another, speaking in different kinds of tongues. And still to another, the interpretation of tongues. So here's what you find. Gift to one person same God. Gift to another person, same God. So you have this unity of source and diversity of effect and impact. That's the focus of what Paul's saying. And you'll find in these listing of gifts that some of the gifts have nine gifts in the list. Some gifts have eight in this context. Some gifts list have three. Some have a higher number in the book of Romans. Okay. None of the, none of the gifts list in the New Testament are exhaustive. And I think there's behind that this idea that God is working in whatever way is necessary in various settings to accomplish his purposes through his body. The focus is that he is the source of everything we need for life and godliness as the church. Okay, so that we are never under-gifted. But God in his design in this text is doing all of this just as he determined. So when you get to verse 11, it says, all these are the work of the one and same spirit, and he distributes to each one just as he determines. So that God in this outworking of spiritual gifting is sovereign in his purpose and plan. He's in charge of it. Okay. So first thing I want to note as we look at this text is that there is a a core confession or core aim that kind of surrounds church ministry. It is the reason for which we exist, okay? So in verses 1 to 3, Paul talks about this issue, okay? And I think it it, it kind of is summarized at the last part of verse 3. No one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. So the, the aim of this broader discussion about spiritual gifts is the exaltation of Christ, So the way that I know if a person in terms of the exercise of the spiritual gift has God's goal in mind, the end result of their work will always be to exalt Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Okay, so that's, if you will, an acid test of the validity of someone's function. Is the aim of their ministry to make much of Jesus and his saving work? 
Okay, so that's a, that's a, 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 a kind of a, a basic foundation that's present here. All genuine work of the Holy Spirit will end in making much of Jesus. And any focus on spiritual gifts that obscures Christ is like making much of parsley sitting on a tenderloin steak. Okay, it's a mistake to think that the garnish is the purpose. The purpose of the garnish is to exalt the main dish. The purpose of spiritual gifts is to make much of the centrality of the church, and that is Christ. Okay, so that's one test that as you think through the complicated area of spiritual gifts, the aim must always be the exaltation of Jesus. Okay, so I want you just to see that that's where Paul starts this complicated discussion. He comes back to the cross of Christ. He says it all starts here. Never get obsessed with the trimmings of Christmas and forget Christ. And it's something like that is what he's saying by analogy. Okay, so clarification, our core confession. Secondly, Paul establishes a, what I'm going to say is a basic understanding of spiritual gifts. So he's in 4 through 11, he's going to go through a discussion of spiritual gifts that I read to you. He's going to uh, give us a list of gifts. He's going to tell us where gifts come from and why they're given. So this very simple definition of what are we talking about this morning, if you're newer in the church, you might be saying, I'm trying to get a grasp on what this idea of spiritual gifts is, okay? And the word that is often translated spiritual gifts is twofold. One talks about gifts of grace, okay, meaning they are God's gracious um, empowerment for people to serve one another. The other uh, idea is they are the things of the Spirit. They are the purpose of the Spirit's coming. These are the ways in which he is working to benefit and build up the body of Christ. So what then is a spiritual gift? And I'm just going to, there are different ways you can say this, but it's this. It is a special or unique ability given to a believer by the Holy Spirit for the service of the body of Christ. Okay? So it's a, an ability given by God through the Spirit who takes up residence in believers so that you can benefit from the effort of other believers in the body of Christ. So this becomes a, a, a vital part of understanding how we function and survive and thrive as the body of Christ. These giftings, these capacities, these abilities that come along with the working of the Spirit, the aim of them is your benefit and growth. So this thought that some would see gifts as prominent and people as more important absolutely defeats the aim and purpose of spiritual gifts. Does that part make sense? Okay, if I'm admiring highly gifted people and I don't take someone like Don Wagner, who I do admire, okay, and say I am, and I seriously am, thankful for the gifts that Don Wagner has because when he walks into a church, he assumes that we are there. And he said this to me, that we are in the church to serve one another and that God gifts us so that we can effectively and efficiently help each other to be our very best for the glory of God. Okay? So, so, so that's a kind of a, a basic definition. Okay? So I told you that the list here is nine gifts and eight gifts, the two times that it's listed, and the list is not intended to be exhaustive. It's, it's exemplary, and in this context, one of the lists contains a lot of what people tend to think of as prominent gifts because Paul is trying to make a point about the fact that the prominence of gifts is not the focus, but the effect of gifts on the body of Christ as a whole is to be the focus of our work in ministry. So, 
I read through this text, and here's the basic principles that I can arrive at about spiritual gifts. These are just simple observations. Number one is this. Every believer is gifted by God. Okay? This text says two times God gives individually to each one. So every, every believer should be seeking to understand how God at a specific time in their life and ministry wants to be using them. So the goal is not to get a title so that I can say I'm this. The goal is how can God use me today to impact the brother or sister in Christ in my sphere of influence. Okay, I don't see anything in the text that says that they're given and that it's permanent. That I think it's more, there's an ebb and flow with this. There's a flexibility to what God is doing by the Spirit in our lives. Now, we may have more distinct markings in certain gifts. But this idea of God gifting believers to meet a need in a moment is the idea of spiritual gifting. That he raises our natural capacity with a divine spiritual capacity so that we can be effective in bringing positive change into the life of others around us in the body of Christ. Okay, so every believer has and should expect to experience God's gifting to make them effective. God's gifts are sovereignly distributed. This text tells us verse 7 and verse 11 that it is by God's design that this is working. So how God impresses you and wires you in certain circumstances is so that he can use you to bring positive, effective change in the lives of your brothers and sisters. Third, the purpose is always mutual benefit. Verse 7, each one is given a manifestation or evidence of the Spirit for the common good. There is a broad picture in play, not an individual picture in play. God wants to use you to effect change in the life of your brother and sister in Christ. That's why he gives these gifts. Fourth, no gift is for every believer. You get down to chat, verse 29 through 30. Is everyone this? The answer implied rhetorically is no, and it happens seven times times okay so the 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 idea that every believer has to manifest a certain gift is contrary to what paul says at the end of the text in 28 through 30 and so i think it's important that we know that because this idea of over elevating certain gifts leads to much destruction and harm in the body of christ gifts are meant to serve and encourage others not to make them feel less of themselves and the last thing is this. Gifts are not a sign of spirituality. The fruit of the Spirit is. Okay, Paul can say in 1 Corinthians 1, you have every spiritual manifestation, but you are fleshly. <laughs> okay? You have every evidence, but you're fleshly. The fruit of the Spirit says who we really are becoming. It focuses on character, whereas spiritual gifts focus on ministry. Okay, so if you want to know who you are in Christ, how you're progressing, go to the list of the fruits of the Spirit and say, is God manifesting Christ-like character in my life so that the gifts of the Spirit can function effectively through this vessel that is qualified by godly character to be used and serve? Okay, so it's important to make that distinction. So those are the kind of highlights in this text. Okay, verses 12 through 14 then. Paul now drifts into an analogy, or if you prefer the the word illustration or metaphor, okay? He's going to use the human body as a picture of Christ's body, not of Christ's physical body, but he's going to use the human body as a picture of what the church is like, okay? And he's going to have a couple 
just very simple uh, observations from the metaphor. So here's essentially what he's saying. The church is like a human body. That's the comparison or contrasting that he's going to do. Okay, the church should function and have the effect of a singular human body. So verse 12, here's the way he says it. He says, just as a body, though one, okay, so my body is a singular unit, okay? Um, More or less attractive, right? More or less healthy. It's all kinds of things, different shapes, sizes, but it's one body. It is what it is, okay? So that's the first one. There's one body, but that body is made up of many parts. I've done some study in human anatomy, and that's really where where Paul's drawing from, from limited knowledge in the ancient world. Can you imagine how this illustration would really take on uh, greater clarity in a modern setting where we understand internal systems of the body and bone structures and, 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 and just on all the complicated things that were unknown in the ancient world. Paul says the body has many parts, but it, it aims to accomplish one goal. So there are many parts, but one body. And if you look at verse 13, it's fascinating. In the middle of this discussion, he says, just as, the, as a body, though one has many parts, but all of its parts form one body, so it is with Christ's body is what is implied. For we were all baptized by one spirit, so as to form one body, that is, we're brought into this by the work of the Spirit, whether we're Jews or Gentiles, slaves or free. So what he does is he points to the diversity in the body, people from all social statuses and from various ethnic backgrounds. Diversity. But in Christ, all of that should become meaningless. What matters is that we're children of God, right? That's the, that's the focus, and that as children of God, we have been brought together to form the body of Christ, and God has a mission for this body, the chapel of Warren Valley, to perform. Okay, that's how this text begins to shape up and form up. In verse 14, he says, even so the body is not made up of one part, meaning don't focus on prominence. Don't focus on the pastors. Focus on what we do as a church. This is never for any of us, but one of us as pastors, my church. It's God's church. And we have a function here and you have a function here. All of those functions are vital to healthy work and accomplishment. That's the way God designed it. So we have to constantly fight against people thinking the pastor has to do this or that. No, the church has to do this or that. And the question at times is, which part of the church will most effectively function in that particular situation? Can I ask you this question? Do I enjoy the benefit and input of others in the body of Christ? Do I seek to experience the blessing of my brothers and sisters' presence in my life. I'm a pastor, but I'm going to tell you something. It, because of the nature of pastoral ministry, the input of people within the body becomes more crucial and more vital, more sustaining, more important. Okay, because things can be draining in life. And we together are the body of Christ. No individual can carry the full responsibility and effectively accomplish what the church has been called by God to do. It's too big. So it requires all of us working together. 
Am I in settings where my gifts can function? Do I get into small group settings, into small settings of fellowship where there is some give and take and where God can begin to flesh out for us the way that he's wired us spiritually with those special abilities to make a unique difference in someone's life? Are we looking for those opportunities? Because we understand that I'm part of something big, but I'm a unique individual part of it contributing to the whole. Okay, what is Paul doing? He's casting for you and I a vision. Now, after he talks about the body of Christ being this singular instrument made up of many parts to accomplish God's bidding, to do God's will, Paul begins to anticipate, or if you will, uncover distortions that were present in the church in Corinth in relationship to the topic at hand. Okay, uh, some writing about, uh, about the First Corinthians says, have called chapters 12 through 14, Paul addressing charismatic chaos, okay? Things are, are not healthy in the church in Corinth, not because of the issue of particular gifts, but because of the issue of raising certain gifts to an undue level of prominence. That's the issue in the text. And so I want you to think through this as you look at verses 15 down through verse 24. He's going to kind of look at two distortions. So if I have the church as the body of Christ, how could that be misunderstood, misinterpreted, or misused? Okay, that's the question that Paul is going to address. So what are the two distortions that devalue and handicap, that, that hamstring the church? Okay, and the first one is exposed in verses 15 through 20. Now, I'm I'm not going to read through these just for the sake of time. I, let, me, let me see if I can kind of attempt to just give you a, a quick summary of, what, of what's going on. To give you a summary statement of 15 to 20. Okay, here's the first distortion. The first distortion happens when we look at prominent gifts and devalue our personal contribution to the body of Christ. Okay? I start focusing on visible gifts and, and, and the people that have prominence, that have high impact. And as I do that, I begin to think, I'm nothing. I'm not that important. As a pastor, you can do this. All right, go look at some celebrity. Go listen to some celebrity and then listen to yourself. Okay, it's not always encouraging. Okay, so I'm capable of this in my function and role. And Paul's concerned that people would look at prominent parts and devalue their own contribution. Think that it is, it's second rate, it's not that important, it doesn't make a difference. Here's the way he says it in verse 15. He says, now, if the foot, so he's got a body analogy, look at the whole body. He says, now, imagine the foot saying, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body. Meaning, the hand is so much more important, it's so much more elegant, it can be adorned, it's capable of amazing things that a foot just simply isn't capable of. And that's true, right? But does the fact that the hand has unique functions and unique beauty mean that I don't need my feet? Okay? You start thinking it through. And then Paul says this. He says, if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body. It would not for that reason, verse 16, 
stop being part of the body. Meaning, if, if I look at an eye with its capacities, its ability to twinkle, to be adorned, it's a beautiful thing. Most people don't look at ears and think, that's a good looking ear. Okay? But here's what's happening. The ear is thinking, since I'm not adorned and beautiful, and that eye is blue and amazing, startling, stunning. But here's what Paul's saying. That's gross. Because what you're really saying is, and this is what he says, if the whole body were an eye, where would the hand be? What he's saying is this. Imagine that the, the, imagine a rather large, substantial eye. And what, that's the stuff of horror movies, right? That's what Paul's saying. You, if you say that that one part should be exalted to be the main thing, any spiritual gift, you do that. You grotesquely distort what God is trying to do through his church. So Paul's saying, here's what I imagine. I imagine that six-foot eye gets something in its eye and wishing it had a hand, okay? That's what I think about. The picture is intended to allow us to say that would, that's distorted. That, there's no beauty to a six-foot eye. There is beauty to things in their God-given position, even to feet. Not my feet. But the feet of a lot of other people, okay? My feet, I, my feet scare me, okay? I'm tempted at times to sleep with socks on because they're getting in bed with me. It's like, all right, so what is Paul saying? He, he, he's saying... If all were one, it would radically limit what the body can do. So an undue affection for prominence and visible destroys what God is doing. Please understand that. And the second distortion is looking... Let me read you this real quick. And this, I think, is one of the keys of understanding this. In terms of the body's beauty... Okay, aesthetically, ears, eyes, and feet have beauty in their God-ordained context as a contribution to the whole. But taken out of their God-given context and function, they become grotesque. It is that threat of distortion that Paul, Paul uses rhetoric and hyperbole to destroy. It's why he says, imagine the whole body is an eye. Why does he say that? He's trying to destroy, perish the thought. Let's get back to what God is doing. The second thought comes up in verse 21. And I'll read this verse for you. The eye cannot say to the hand, I do not need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. What's the distortion? Distortion is looking at less prominent parts and disregarding their contribution. So it moves from the ear looking at the eye and saying, and I must be nothing. So the eye saying to the hand, I don't need you, meaning I'm more important to you, therefore you're unnecessary in my life. Both conclusions are faulty and destroy what God intends to do through his church. Don't ever disregard the contribution of people in the body of Christ. You know, I was thinking of this this morning. Uh, My task this morning is to come and to present the word of God to you. I, do you know that it takes about, I was just counted this morning, 25 to 30 people for us to have a service in this building for this to happen. And unfortunately, what most people tend to focus on is a worship leader and a preacher. And Paul says, perish that thought. 
Let's understand that a, the healthy function of the body of Christ involves all parts, every part doing their part, everyone giving and receiving. Because there is a mutual relationship in the body of Christ that I must understand. I need to realize that I need input from Lee and Lee needs input from me. Does that make sense? It's mutual. It's reciprocal. That's how God makes it work. And, and the, the body, all the different parts have a beauty of their own, but only in their God-given context. And so that is true of every one of us. Our beauty as believers emerges in the greater picture of what God is doing, not in our individual life. And that is the issue that had risen in the church in Corinth. People with certain gifts, particularly in this context, speaking gifts, had sought prominence and people had given it to them and disregarded themselves. Paul's like, I won't put up with that. And so it goes into hyperbole and rhetoric to destroy that view of the church because it is hurtful and damaging to all that God is doing. Now, I, 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 thought of, I thought of Thanksgiving dinner, and I thought of how beautiful the table is, and I thought of only having eyes, and I said, perish the thought. Can you imagine you had the capacity to visually consume everything on the table, but no ability to partake? Right? That's sad. And and, and that's what Paul's saying. He says, to have such a view that focuses on visible things and is consumed with that and not with the substance and purpose is dangerous. I have eyes that can see and a nose, I know, prominent feature, a nose that can smell the meal, and I have taste buds that can taste it. I have a stomach that can digest it and fall asleep. Okay? And that whole experience requires a whole lot of parts that I am not even conscious of, that I don't even think of. I don't think of my lower organs, okay, when I eat. I don't think about it, but I'm glad you're there. Okay? And so it is with the church. There are hidden parts and unseen parts that all have a vital and important function to what a church ultimately does. And often they are, the, they are the more important things that are never acknowledged but are crucial to the success and health and prosperity of what God is doing in his church. And I think that's the part we've got to get back to to realize that every one of us needs to Examine our commitment to the body of Christ, understanding that it, by God's design, is interdependence, that no part can survive alone, that all parts are needed. And by virtue of its rich diversity, it is able to be healthy. That's why we've got to start to think about more as we look at the church. So to conclude, let me just uh, share this last thought from verse 24 and following. In the middle of verse 24, Paul says this. He says, but God, in contrast to the distortions, okay, focusing on prominence, in contrast to that, what did God do? God has put the body together. And this, this to me is to help me to understand. Sovereignly, God is working. He has you here in this church for his sovereign purpose and plan. He brought you here because he wants to use you here to make a difference in people's lives. 
Because the body of Christ can never be talked about a thing. It's always a body made up of many parts, many individuals that need your ministry and service. And you need theirs. And in that sense, it's mutual. So Paul says, verse 24, God has put the body together. And God, in his profound wisdom, has given greater Honor to the parts that lacked it. Do you see what God's doing? This is the nature of the gospel. You read the gospels, Jesus is always taking outsiders and making them insiders. He's always taking people from no place and giving them status. That's what he does in the body of Christ. Your position in the body of Christ, your gift and its use is God's plan and design. And that should excite me. It should give me confidence about using my gift, about making a difference in the context of our church family. He has taken the parts that didn't have any honor and he has given it to them so that, why does he do it? He does it so that there would be no division in the church, meaning so that there would be greater unity in the church, so that we would realize that we all need each other. That's the aim. But that its parts should have equal concern for each other. And I love what Paul says next. He says, if one part suffers, every part suffers with it. And if one part rejoices, everybody's happy with them. I love that. I love that. Jim Argan Jesus said to me a few, a few months ago, when I was talking with him, he said, he said, some people lack the capacity to receive the joy of others. And I thought, that is a strange way to say that. But as I thought about it, I thought, that's true. Sometimes I can't be happy unless I'm happy. (laughs) Meaning I can't be happy for you unless I'm happy myself. That's a shame. That's a shame. Paul says if one part's hurting, the whole body feels that. We, In the physical analogy, about, I don't know, 20 years ago, I was starting a lawnmower and eight horsepower uh, riding mower. I pulled the cord and then the compression sucked my hand back into the head of the mower, the shroud. I pulled my hand away and I literally plucked out the fingernail on my middle finger. I plucked it out clean as a whistle. I looked down, all I saw was flaming red. Now I have a, I have a very unique response to pain of that kind and to red blood, okay? I started fading out, man. My whole body reacted to that one event. I could not, in that moment of pain, say, ah, I don't care, I'm going to mow the grass. <laughs> Honestly, I was disabled by what my body was going through. Okay, Every nerve under that nail exposed. And then a nurse friend coming over and said, oh, we need to scrub that. And I was like, get the heck, you are not scrubbing my finger. <laughs> like, that is not going to happen. Or you're going to be hurting too, Okay. But here's what happened. I could not function the rest of that day. I had to sit around disabled because one part was suffering. Okay, you know what Paul says? If the Tchaikovsky family is suffering in the loss of a nephew, that's my pain. And the way I help them is by entering into their experience and saying, I don't know what to say, but I'm here. And we're sympathizing and empathizing with you in this circumstance. And if someone's rejoicing because Ryan and Ellen had a baby, okay, we can go to the Duvenex and say, we're so happy for what God is doing. Do you see? And, and without jealousy, without, oh, who do they think? That? No, no, no. 
If one part does, every part does. That's the beautiful design of what God is doing. And here's the thing I want you to realize. When you get to verse 27, you kind of come to the punchline of this text. Look at verse 27. Paul says, now you are the body of Christ. So I just want you to stop there. You are the body of Christ. Folks, listen. Every good thing that God does in the New Testament is almost always tied to a corporate manifestation of the body of Christ. Very little New Testament teaching relates to individual living. The vast majority of New Testament teaching is about corporate living. Because when I focus on corporate living, I realize that I personally must be a, an authentic, with godly character, man of God to influence that bigger picture. Okay, my life matters in relationship to the whole. This whole text is not about individuals. It's about a body and how individuals are part of that body and that individually I am valueless and, pro- and possibly grotesque, detached, but involved. There is a beauty and a symmetry and a design that is honored and it is glorious to see what God does through a committed assembly of believers who realized that we, the church in Corinth in this case, was a local manifestation of the body of Christ complete. It was the Jesus that God wanted the people of Corinth to see. And it was the Jesus that was being distorted by the faulty views of spiritual gifts in the church in Corinth. And for that, Paul has no tolerance. And so he writes very strong with hyperbole, with exaggeration, to make a point that every part matters. And when any part thinks that it doesn't, the rest of the body is in some way handicapped or is deficient in its effect. It's beautiful to think of this, that the chapel at Warren Valley gathered the body of Christ, his work. And when we go out, we represent him. You know, it's interesting. Jesus said to the 12 disciples, you're the light of the world. He didn't say it to one. He said it to all of them. You corporately are the light of the world. Paul says to Corinth, you are the body of Christ. You are the only visible representation of Jesus that your sphere of influence will see. Make it good. And make it accurate. Make it attractive. Do everything you can to maintain the unity of spirit, Paul says, in the bond of peace. Rick Warren said it this way. He said, we are better together by God's design than we are when we are alone. We are better in sensing and meeting needs and using our gifts when we're together than we are alone. Paul ends by saying, do all have this gift? And the answer rhetorically is no. Do all have the gift of tongues? No. Do all have the gift of healing? No. Do all have prophecy? No. Paul says, perish the thought that everyone has to be one thing. It goes to a grotesque end. But I understand that you are part of something bigger and more glorious. And as a church family, I want to say this this morning. Uh, We are blessed with a number of faithful people at the chapel. We're... uh, blessed with a great number of people who faithfully 
commit to serving one another. And that makes all the difference. Now, are there some of us who are not as committed as we can be and ought to be? The answer is absolutely yes. Okay, what's the challenge from the text? Examine your level of commitment to the body of Christ. Now, there's one family in our church that when they came, the dad came to me and he said this. He said, look, we're thinking of coming to the chapel, but we will only go to a church where we can serve. You could have knocked me over. It's very rare that someone comes into a church and says, we're not really interested unless we can get involved. It's powerful. And then there are some people that show up and they just get involved and they're of the same ilk, the same tribe, if you will. Right? What makes a church beautiful is when people just start stepping up and filling in where there's needs of ministry. Some of them relate to spiritual gifting. Some of them are just needs of the body that you don't have to have a special gift for. But what we're concerned about as leadership is that we, we treasure this aim of the local church and that is to glorify Christ by making Christ beautifully visible in our community as a church family. Okay, that we, that's our, our aim is to exalt Christ by making Christ attractive and beautiful through our lives corporately, together making a difference. That's one focus we want to lean towards. Let's, I heard this in, in, said in other contexts, but let's turn on the magnet of grace gifts unleashed in selfless service so that a needy world around us sees Christ in his body without distortion. And when we begin to love each other and serve each other, which is where it goes in the next chapter, the greatest gift is love. Then when we begin to serve each other out of love, it turns on the magnet that attracts people to want to know Christ. May God help us to be so devoted to each other that people become curious about what binds you together, what draws you close to one another. And the second thought is this, and this is a derivative out of this, you are members of the body of Christ, verse 26 and 27. It's the, it's the, it's the terminology, it's the language that Paul uses. It's the language of membership. You know, for a Christian in salvation, God brought us into the body. And I think that's what Paul's saying here. From various backgrounds, socially and ethnically, he brings us into a new body, a new family, it is a heavenly reality, this idea of becoming a part. And in our culture, membership is the way that we express commitment to an organization, to a group. So one of the things that we're doing as a leadership team is encouraging you to consider coming on board as a member at the chapel. To say, I, I want to make a commitment. I believe this is the local church God has called me to, that he has attracted me to and making me part of. I want to make that official. Okay, and here's the other thing I want to say. The fact that you've made that official, and by the way, there's a, a, the list out on the table. You can sign up for the membership class and say, you know what, I, I want to I get on board in that way. Okay, I want to encourage you to do that. Here's the other thing I want to say to you. It's possible to have your name on a membership list and not be a member. Okay, meaning I can be officially on a list but not committed. Okay. So the call for every member is to say, let's together step up our game so that God can begin to use us more effectively to exalt Christ in our community for the benefit of his name and of his church. Okay, so I want to encourage you in those ways this morning. And this morning also, if you've never trusted Christ, if you 
Maybe you've been coming because you're curious. You, you're, there is something beautiful about the body of Christ that you're seeing and observing. And there's a curiosity, a draw that you sense from the Spirit of God calling you to, to learn about Christ and trust in Christ. I had a couple of people recently tell me, that's how God's working in their life. I, if today you sense the Spirit of God saying, I want you to be part of my body. I want to forgive you through the shed blood of my son so that you can be part of what he is doing in the chapel at Warren Valley and in this community. I want to encourage you. Cry out to Jesus this morning. Confess your sin to him and say, Jesus, I believe that you are a great Savior who rescues me from all of my sin. And today I want to trust you. I want to become part of your bigger picture and part of your smaller picture of what you are doing in my community for the glory of God. Would you pray with me this morning? Father, we're thankful for your word. Uh, This text is uh, challenging and beautiful. It gives us a good picture of what we are to be. So let us, Lord, as we go, make commitments, commitments to to effect change in the lives of those around us for the glory of God, commitments to sense and meet needs, to be uh, effective in serving one another in the body of Christ, commitments to get on board as a member of the church family, to honor what God has done in the spiritual realm, in the physical realm of membership in a local church, to be committed. Oh God, I pray. I pray that as we read verse 27, you are the body of Christ. I pray, God, that we would get a sense of something that is beyond us and yet possible by the Spirit for each one of us. It's beyond us, Lord, to be your body. But it's what you have called us to and empowered us to be by the gifts of your Spirit. So let us lay hold of them and let us surrender all that we are to that service. We pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen.